vaccine. I am not Steve Cuff. Uh, yeah, apparently this month was just too horny for him. So, uh, uh this is Adam Myros. I will be your, uh, boring host for this evening. Uh, thankfully the movies are exciting enough to, uh, keep you engaged. Hopefully. So, uh, joining me this week, uh, we have Jack Eason as per usual. Jack, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. You know, you can't keep me away from the horny cinema. Got nothing else going on. It's Days are getting shorter, darkness closes in, just gotta keep the lights on with sexiest movies, you know? Yeah, we gotta move to the desert, that's what I've learned this week. <laughs> Maybe later. Yeah, strange <laughs> things happen out there. Yeah. Uh, also joining me, we have Jake Trapila. Jake, how's it going? Pretty good, how are you, Adam? Oh, you know, I'm surviving, I'm surviving. I, I feel the, uh, the encroaching winter as well, although today was, uh... Quite beautiful. I, I don't know how long that's going to hold. Yeah, at the uh, at the time of this recording, it's currently uh, 77 degrees here in uh, the San Fernando Valley of sunny Southern California. See, I, <laughs> I don't envy that. Today it was like a beautiful 60, a nice breeze. It was just about perfect. But uh, talk to me in like two days and I'll be jealous because I think it's about to bottom out. So Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Well, continuing on our, our uh, new theme month here, which uh, I believe, based on the Patreon poll, is is almost certainly going to be christened Yes Nut November. Uh, you'll know for sure when the episode drops, but uh, it sure seems likely that that is what the people have chosen. Um, beyond that, we, we are moving past the patron request into uh, our own devious choices here, and... Boy, this one really backfired on me because I, I chose this specifically for Steve because I had recently watched uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and said, holy shit, who's seen this? And I think all of you guys said, yeah, absolutely, we've seen it. And he said, no. So I said, well, we got to remedy that. Uh, so, of course, he skipped the episode. But uh, nonetheless, we are covering Russ Meyer. And um, it's been a fascinating journey, I think. Um, there, there's really like three distinct parts of, of Russ Meyer's career, I would say. And, uh, we are sampling all three, which is saying something because I, I would say one of them is, is only just the one movie, which is beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, his only foray into like major studio work. But, uh, yeah, we're starting with the, the grimier stuff when he was like a really popular underground filmmaker. Uh, obviously notoriously fascinated with uh, large breasted women uh, a lot of go-go dancing and violence uh, populates these films, and uh, that is, is very evident in the first film we will be covering, uh, 1965's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. It's perhaps his most well-known film. Uh, I don't know. This is, uh, I think Jack has gone so far as to call this a masterpiece. I, I don't know if I could quite get there, but uh, explain yourself, Jack. Oh, I mean, this movie just opens with... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence. And that's pretty much the thesis. I, I think this is, um, I mean, I, I only saw this for the first time maybe a year or so ago, but I was lucky enough to catch it on like a 35 mil print big screen and it just blew me away. I just, I'd never seen anything like it. And I was like, man, I should have I caught this years ago. I mean, I knew of the film. I had no idea it was this high octane 
like genre film that's just like pitched at this level of camp uh, kind of intensity i'm not sure it's really camp it's just this kind of like knowing intensity that's just absolutely unrelenting every line is a pun everything's a wordplay but it all feeds back into this very very direct violent energy and sexual energy it's it's i mean is it a masterpiece? I think it is uh, perhaps the quintessential American genre film, you know, with the conception of what a genre is and what popular cinema necessitates. Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, which I think got that title specifically because Ross Meyer felt it was, you know, it, it had all of the words that, like, made for a great commercial title. Um... You know, like like Garfield, you know, it was it was built from the ground up to be to be popular. Uh, this this is just a, an amazing kind of movie. It's it's just absolutely like I say, just got this energy to it. This this kind of viewpoint, it's remarkable. Um, it it has a sexual vent vent to it, and and I guess Russ Meyer's own sexual gaze and his his fascination with large breasts is fully evident in this. But it's also a movie about three women who take no shit from anyone. It's it's got all these kind of elements and antagonisms within it. It's just pretty amazing time. I I gotta say, pretty pretty wild film. So yeah, I I would I stand by every. I watched this movie at least three times since I first saw it, like in the last year and a half. And it's it's not getting any worse for me. I'm not finding flaws. If anything, I'm just I'm leaning ever more heavily into what it is, and it it just kind of blows me away each time. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't don't know if I'd go so far as to call it a quintessen- the quintessential genre film. I mean, perhaps the quintessential like grindhouse sort of uh, drive-in. Like that to me, that's what Russ Meyer most embodies is this sort of drive-in culture. And um, yeah, it, it this certainly it's interesting to look at this stretch of films and and see like all the influence he obviously had on musicians because you've got your faster pussycat, you've got your mud honey. Uh, you've even got motor psycho, a, a classic awful Megadeth song. Uh, but yeah, I, it, it's influence is certainly undeniable. I, I, and it's oddly, you wouldn't think it uh, considering the title and well, the content, but it's, it's probably the, the least horny of these three films. Right, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that this Meyer came out of Nudie Cuties, of which she was really one of the pioneering artists within that kind of softcore genre. Um, but Faster Pussycat has no nudity in it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's got some sexual elements to it, certainly, and obviously there, there's a strong sexual tinge to everything, but, like, there's no nudity in it. There's not really... The sex scenes in it are quite tame. He'd made more sexually explicit films prior to this, so this is kind of sublimating the sexual into some kind of rebellious, violent, countercultural energy. And I suppose, like I say, it's the ultimate genre film in, in the same way that, like, Peaches Fuck the Pain Away is the ultimate pop song. It's, it's metatextually the pop song about what pop music is for and leans in heavily to both the aesthetic but also to, like, reading the quiet part out loud. I think Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is the same kind of a concept. It, it is... You know, it's a grindhouse film, sure, but I think all genre cinema is in some way or another uh, kind of trying to recreate the nuts and bolts of what Meyer is just absolutely gleefully capturing here. So, you know, it's it's this is what you want, right? You want, like, just sexy women and violence and chaos. That's, that's what it's all about. And cars, yeah. yes, you know? That's what it's all about. Just movement and energy and speed and, and aggression all unchecked, all just, like, 
firing around. It's it's yeah, it's 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 a wild time. I, I just can't imagine people not finding something enjoyable within this. Like I think it's one of these movies that's like it's not straight feminist per se, but there's certainly it holds up some interesting qualities under that light. It's it's a very well made film. It's got like a lot of really like interesting points to it. It's it's clearly not by you know misogynist either. I mean the men in the movie are all fucking awful. No. Um, it's just got these like <laughs> it's got a little something for everyone. Yeah, you'd probably still be sticking in the the Freudian Marxist mold before you would go feminist on something like this. But it is is certainly very neutral. Again, it is that that welcome to violence. It's universal in its way. You know, it's it's not delineating between uh, genders. And, uh, yeah, that is, it, it's a really interesting text. Uh, Jake, we haven't heard from you. What do you got? Yeah, well, let me just say first and foremost, uh, Jack, I, you do have a fighter in your corner here. This is an American masterpiece through and through. Um, but if I could just take a, a quick step back and look at Russ Meyer, Meyer on a broader scale mm -hmm. um, here. Um, when we announced that we were doing a smut month, so to speak, um, that kind of topic has the potential to invite in a lot of, uh, well, shit, for lack of a better word. There is, you know, danger of just slogging through a lot of bad material whose primary focus is to dish out the TNA. And without we will. Any real, Don't worry, it, without, Oh, yes. I know. I'm just saying this is, this is a high bar, not just for this month, but probably in the history of this podcast. I have not felt much excitement since the David Lynch episode. Where I was like, oh man, this is, this is amazing. I'm so happy because Russ Meyer, he, yes, he does have a fascination with large-breasted women, of course, that is prevalent in all films, but he is first and foremost a filmmaker. He is making movies as art and like every single shot is framed in stage just so dynamically. His editing is fantastic. Usually there's just a great rhythm to all of his films. The, you know, performances, you can be good or bad. I think they're all terrifically expressionistic. Uh, I, I think this is really what separates Russ Meyer from the other perverts is that he makes quality work. And yeah, faster pussycat kill kill. I've seen it twice now. I love it so much. It's just as far as like low budget American cinema goes, this is like the best that you can get. This is, you know, 83 minutes of high octane action and and drama and all all the wonderful things that make movies great it's all here yeah yeah i i would not disagree with that i just yeah i, I tend to prefer one of these other films a, a little bit more but uh, that's all right i uh yeah I, it, it's really just i haven't watched a lot of his earlier stuff but uh, you know when i'm saying i'll delineate him into like three categories you could even add a fourth with the nudie cuties but a lot of those aren't feature length and um, a lot of them also still play in this playground. You know, if you go and read like the synopsis of wild gals of the naked West, which is a, a most assuredly a nudie cutie, it's still like uh, steeped in this violence. And uh, yeah, it's not just like, you know, hot babes shaking it at the beach. There's always something else going on in his films. And yeah, that's, that's to be a lot of, I will say what I just said with the caveat that I've only seen the three films that we are primarily discussing for this episode. I'm not, I'm sure, you know, the, the rest of his work may not be as good. And I do also love another one of the films as much as uh, faster pussycat, but um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure he's made some less than stellar things, but uh, 
as far as I'm concerned, he's great. He, he I, I think I think you, you'll find you explore more. And I, I've just been watching a few additional ones on this because I've been meaning to watch more of Meyer's work for ages. And this podcast was an excellent excuse to finally do it. I gathered so many of them. Unfortunately, a lot of these not easy to see on home video. The Russ Meyer estate is not particularly interested in home video. They're apparently very, very accommodating for repertory screenings. But uh, unless you live in a major city and someone's doing that, you're, it's tricky a lot of these kind of reside in sub dvd level i think arrow managed to put out a dvd box set in the uk christ like 15 20 years ago nearly at this point which was a major event at the time um and that's probably the best quality any of these films are available in with the exception of one we'll discuss later valley of the dolls because that's a hollywood production and mm -hmm. so has has different people behind the rights but i mean i think meyer's work holds up um there's a lot of interesting points in uh, you know, throughout all of his films, and um, yeah, I you know, I, I like it. going back to like what the the crux of Fast Pussy Get Kill Kill. I think this is a really interesting element to it that it's like bad girls gone wild kind of a concept, but these women are kind of staking a place in the world. Like they're demanding, they're violent and aggressive. They're they're criminal. They're you know they they they're beyond simply staking out their claim. They are impeding on or impinging on other people almost. But there's this, this incredible kind of energy to it that is so far away from, frankly, a lot of even the real '60s sexual liberation kind of rhetoric of the time, which was more about women. Kind of like, yeah, having an equal say, but there was still kind of a, a lot of framework put on them in terms of where they would go. I mean, I think a lot of people looking back would say the sexual revolution of the 60s was largely a failure and largely nowhere near as feminist as it was purported to be at the time. Um, you know, and, and how it turned out it was mostly about, you know, like, yeah, you know, sex is no big deal, so you should have sex with me. Uh, as more of the kind of uh, rhetoric that was circulating among guys to bring women into the fold rather than any kind of like clear framework for anything. Um, this is a whole other range, really. I mean, this is something we find repeating in Meyer's work, which is women demanding things and taking them. And this trio at the center are just this. And what's what's fascinating is, I mean, they're not even like they're, they're also they're not friends. Like the three of this mm -hmm. this gang are loosely held together at the best of times. And and one of them's uh, a specific like wild card. She's this fantastic line. She's like talking about the leader. Says sometimes she tries to figure me. I can't even figure myself. You know, she's just she just does whatever for pleasure. Um, you know, these women are in, at odds with each other, they're at odds with the world, they're just taking their cars and driving out into the desert, into areas that are kind of like, you know, primal, untamed, no law, you know, you and nothing's illegal unless someone sees you doing it or whatever, you know, and they end up murdering a guy and kidnapping a girl and taking her back for money, possibly, the, the plan is never entirely, entirely certain. Um, it's, it's just, yeah, I like this, this incredible, energetic, kind of, like, slap-in-the-face film. It's like, this is like, you know, your hot cup of coffee movie. Like, it's just an invective that I think I, I've never really seen anyone else do. And the script is, you know, I mean, as corny as some of this stuff would read, maybe, you know, within a context, since, since the movie kind of maintains that energy undiluted for its entire runtime every single line has like some kind of pith and some element like joke in it some kind of like interesting phrase phraseology to it it's it's just this wonderful text it's it's 
like honestly i you know i would say fast pussycat kill kill is you know one of the great scripts i think this is a, a script you could pull out to show people like this kind of specific use of language this kind of tilt that you can you can work with that you know your actors can deliver on and it's it's kind of an interesting one um like myers uh editing is very quick very quick uh kind of like fleet editing and i think a part of that came from the fact that he worked with a lot of non-professional actors and i mean he's obviously he's worked a lot with strippers <laughs> that was his primary uh hiring ground <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Amazingly enough, all the women in this, they're really good at go-go dancing because guess what all their day jobs were? That's what they were doing for a living. Um, and so I think Meyer understood that they didn't necessarily have acting chops. So what he would do is, I mean, he'd cut around it. He'd, he'd just, he'd get the line and he'd cut away, you know, and, and move to another thing. And I think there's this really, this incredible sensibility to his work that he's able to just kind of like capture the the dynamism of it. And then keep moving through and you know if someone stumbles or whatever it's not a big deal he's got so much footage and it's remarkable he works so fast considering he seems to have so much coverage in every shot he's got so much to cut to to move around with you know it's kind of odd he cuts sex scenes with like cutaways in them where you know obviously in most of the pornorific movies of this era it was kind of like you tend to just stick with the naked people but not russ meyer no he's he kind of sneak in and out almost like his editing was seemed almost in part to be you know um cutting around bad acting potentially or, or or weak points of the acting but also kind of creating this kind of like almost like you're sneaking a look kind of a sense there's a there's a kind of childish glee underneath the something a little bit a little bit saucy and i guess you know fits in very well with like the likes of alfred hitchcock and so on who is you know regarded very highbrow uh master of cinema these days not necessarily when he was working originally but now considered very you know very scholarly um uh russ meyer has not fully made it there but i think he's getting there and i think part of it is because he brings there's something to be said for a man who really wears his his uh his fantasies on his sleeve and then otherwise you know kind of roams around with a kind of wild abandon with a great creative framework and that's that's russ meyer i mean these, these are these are three great movies frankly that we're going to be talking about in this episode yeah yeah i i would agree with that entirely i i think it's just kind of important to like look at how forward some of this stuff is and and it starts with that editing which i will admit uh it's not so much in faster pussycat it, it, this film starts with that really like machine gun editing yeah the go-go sequence especially is, is just kind of like what the fuck and <laughs> You, when we get into uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you really, like, when I was watching it for the first, I would say, half hour to 40 minutes, I was like, do I hate this movie? Like, what the fuck is this editing? Like, and it's it's just so jarring in the era. Like, this is uh, not the sort of, it's very uh, modern editing style, you know, like this hyper quick cutting, like, it is, it just feels like it's on a different planet than most anything you'd see in American film in the 60s. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think Myers and Orson Welles, honestly, were kind of way ahead of the curve on this, on that kind of associative editing. Um, yeah, you know, and not two guys that are often mentioned in, in the same framework, although Orson Welles was also a bit of a leering perv. Yeah. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> certainly. And, but it's just the pacing of it. Even, yeah, you, you could say, like, an Orson Welles or a Hitchcock would feel fast 
in that era, and it certainly is the case, but it's it's nothing like this. This, uh, Russ Meyer is like doing you know, just hundreds of cuts uh, in a minute, you know, it's, sometimes it's just like completely jarring in a way that uh, you associate with uh, modern action films or or frankly, when it's applied wrong, like my initial thing with watching like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls was that first time it reminded me of uh, of that horrible uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I'm like, what is this editing? <laughs> my God, it's just everywhere all at once. And but it's it's very deliberate. Like it's not something that is continuous. It's something that is employed in specific uh, portions of his films uh, to achieve a, a very particular effect. And yeah, that that's what separates a lot of this. Like, you know, you've got the, I suppose the most lasting star of this is Tura Satana, whose biggest role uh, in pop culture is probably Astro Zombie, which is kind of a contemporary of this film. And yeah, is, is also just like the worst Drek imaginable, which you, you look at those two films coming out of this, uh, this drive-in culture and it's just night and day. Like this guy is a craftsman he's not uh, he's not a joke and you can see his influence in a lot of directors that people love these obviously tarantino i mean they're no shit uh but i think lynch too especially when we get to super vixen vixens like that it feels very very lynchian to me yeah i gotta say that's a quite a flex of tura santana to to trademark her own appearance and thus require Russ Meyer to get her permission anytime he wanted to uh, advertise the film. <laughs> that's that's wicked awesome. Um, but yeah, the editing, yeah, this thing just, uh, especially in Beyond the Valley, which I don't know if we want to get into it, but like there's a, a sequence in there that just, it's early on, made me fall in love with it because of how it's edited. And I was thinking of uh, The Other Side of the Wind and that has a very quick editing uh, scheme in there, but I don't know how much of that is necessary because it's being pulled together from various sources to try to finish a film that was shot 45 years ago. But yeah, again, formally, uh, Russ Meyer, he just he just dazzles through and through and everything that yeah, it's everything he makes for me is just been a blast. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting, like Tura Satana, as you say, her her copywriting her own image i'm i'm guessing that probably came from her dancing background like as mm -hmm. a as a striptease go-go dancer that that's probably something that she she felt would be beneficial i don't know maybe she had the foresight for the movie that she just felt like hey why not but um it, it feeds back into this kind of rough feminist element that's underpins these movies that these women are obviously ob sexual objects of of uh, kind of delecticism for for uh, Meyer, but um, there's also this kind of entrepreneurial element to them. I mean, they're they're trading on the sex, but that's it's them very much kind of like doing that. I mean, they came for a lot of them came from the sex industry, and you know, were are working with that and and building their businesses out of that. Um, so, you know, it's again, I just think it's interesting that these women and often their work was completely discarded. I mean, when we get to when Meyer went to Hollywood, I mean. There was there was outrage. I mean that he got a studio contract because he he literally was referred to as King Lear L E or by by the the Hollywood press at the time because because they couldn't ignore him because his movies made money. Right. Uh, he could they couldn't ignore him because like Vixen was basically a softcore porn that played wide. It was one of the you know got an X rating. One of the first, I think, maybe the first American film to get an X rating. I'm not 100 percent sure, 
if that's the case, but like very early, it was one of the very first to get the X rating, which was new at the time, um, and played wide and kind of like really kicked into kind of like that was about 68. So, I mean, you're really talking kind of in the in the run up to that porno chic era, you know, where, where pornography became a little bit mainstream for a while. Um, like Meyer couldn't be ignored by the industry, but the industry certainly did not respect or like him. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, they would they would discard him and his work as just, you know, pornography as, as you know, just stupid, childish, you know, skin flick nonsense. But, you know, I, I think these women have been have been turned into icons in these films, you know, and Haji and, and Tura Satana and, and others have become these kind of like larger than life figures in cinema and blazoned in, you know, in the, in the posters, in the movies, they've become these kind of icons of cinema. And I, I think it's really interesting. And it's just a, a general sense of this kind of um, attempt, I guess, you know, the, 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 the broads, the, the kind of mainstream to kind of like push for a kind of like, um, what would you say, respectability politics or whatever, that they're, you know, we can't, fo you know, yes, we, we trade in sex, there's a little bit of, like, sexiness to movies, but let's not focus too much on it, we're real artists. And then Meyer came in and he had these women that were, you know, pulled out of sex work, doing another kind of sex work, effectively, in the film, and really championing it, and it really, it took off broadly, and looking back on it, I feel like, there, you know, it wasn't cheap or salacious or exploitative necessarily. There's always going to be shades of that in there. And it's interesting. Many of the women who worked with Meyer would say that he was incredibly protective. He was really very wonderful to them. Some others would absolutely regard him as a misogynist. Um, he was uh, at least one actress described him as, you know, he, he basically just felt that women were just life support systems for tits. Um, you know, there's there's a some some uh, disagreement about that, but you know, it just again, this this interesting thing of of just how how these things shake out ultimately. That these things that were considered cheap and salacious and tawdry, honestly, have I think a power to them now. They seem very progressive and iconic and and genuine political and impressive in a way that, frankly, so much other stuff maybe that was considered much more you know, um, this organized and proper at the time has been forgotten or looked to be completely insignificant or useless. Um, so yeah, I, I think something to bear in mind when you, if for anyone who wants to wander into the work of Ross Meyer, I mean, it's, it, there's actually politics is pretty plenty in here. We're not going to go into like Vixen, for example, today, but Vixen is like, is a softcore porno that ends with like a, a discussion of capitalism and communism and dodging the Vietnam War draft, like in and not like you know alluded to like that's a, they just have broad conversations about this stuff. It's it's in there. It's and so um, just kind of a, a strange thing to find in the midst of these enormous breasted women uh, hatching plans or or going through all kinds of terrible deeds and misdeeds. Uh, really, you know, like I think what what I'm appreciating most about exploring Myers' work is that every time I put one on, I genuinely I know there's going to be women with large breasts. I understand this. Everything else, I haven't a clue. It could be anything. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a, probably a good transition to uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is, I suppose, I posited just through title alone and and someone in content like a, a salvo against. Uh, 1967's Valley of the Dolls, which is one of these movies that that feels uh, quite pointedly like something that Hollywood is pumping out in order to, 
uh, undermine and, and suppress sort of the sexual revolution, you know, where, where it is, you know, people go seeking fame and fortune. They have loose morals and uh, it, it goes horribly for them. So what and one of the main here? actresses is murdered yeah. just uh, within a year or so of its release. Well, what else could prove it more? Yes. Oh, that's uh, nice. Yeah. It, this is a, the Sharon Tate movie. So, uh, but yeah, what does uh, Russ Meyer do when he's handed uh, the keys to the kingdom, if you will? Uh, major studio releases, 20th Century Fox. Um, he makes a piss take of that, and it is... It's remarkable, I think. I think it's a, uh, it's just, this is my shit. Uh, where you're talking like my love for something like Spring Breakers, which I, I, there's nothing I like more than when a uh, director seemingly fools a studio into making something completely transgressive and uh, that will not play to a wide audience at all. Uh, and it just somehow gets the budget and, and the distribution to make something that is uh, wholly uh, counterculture and disruptive and somehow unleash it onto the unsuspecting masses. And this film is, is absolutely that. It is fucking incredible and hilarious. But, and, but in uh, yeah. incredible Ross Meyer fashion, though, this movie was also profitable. Yeah. And you're right. Like he, It's not for anyone but Ross Meyer, in a sense. It's complete like him and, and Roger Ebert writing it. It's It's... A wild movie but it was it was profitable 20th century fox it was a wise decision to to bring in king lear to make a movie mm -hmm. yeah and it can only happen in this particular era where you're coming out of a, a vast hollywood recession and you know they're bringing in the whiz kids obviously but they're also bringing in uh russ meyer uh <laughs> yeah anyone who can turn like i mean they, they had president i think I, I think vixen was probably from 68 was was the kicker because i think that was made for about twenty five thousand dollars, and it made guy clear several million at the box i think it made him clear like six million or something at the box office so it was a massive profit turnover mm -hmm. um so yeah I, like you say they were bringing in the the you know after easy rider basically blew up hollywood they were looking for the studios knew they weren't really getting through to the kids anymore and the kids were kind of interested in sex and they were interested in drugs and they were interested in kind of new voices so yeah you bring in young guys and hip cool dudes who make like you know the monkeys bob rafelson and so on but yeah you also bring in kind of a middle-aged uh, kind of dude who loves big tits and russ meyer because he'll, he'll <laughs> he won't go over budget no. he'll get it done um and and he did and it, like i say it's so funny this movie was savaged on its release as far as i'm aware i think critics had no idea what they were seeing and did not like it because it seems like a film fundamentally doesn't take film seriously or doesn't take its subject seriously. Um, it's pitched at such a level of satire that it's not entirely evident it is satirical. Mm -hmm. uh, it just seems like insane at points. But yeah, audiences enjoyed it. It did make its money back uh, theatrically, I think several times over. It was, it was not a flop by any means. And it's kind of interesting. Meyer did make one more film for Hollywood. He made The Seven Minutes, which... Um, so far as I'm aware, I haven't got to that one yet, but I believe it's not really a sex film at all. I think it's an adapt it's a book adaptation and it's uh, about obscenity trials or, or you know, a censorship, a topic I'm sure that Meyer had many strong opinions about. And it's probably one of the least talked about Ross Meyer films. And I have a feeling it's probably because it isn't a sex movie. <laughs> like no one wanted to watch the Ross Meyer movie that isn't about that. So kind of strange. And then he he from that was kicked out of Hollywood and he never went back again. He he would 
go back into the independent arena and ply his trade and make very good money until his, his ultimate retirement. It's almost shocking that there was even a follow-up, frankly, because this is like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it's just like so aggressively taking the piss out of, uh, even Fox, you know, it's taking the piss out of its own studio. It uses its fucking fanfare. The fanfare. Yeah. <laughs> In this, like, ridiculous uh, suicide scene. It's just like, you would think that would be it. (laughs) Can't argue with the box office. No, No, that's that's just one of the craziest flourishes. He he beheads a gigolo who's got his hands and feet bound together, and the dun-da-da-da-da-da-da, as his head flies off the screen, blood shooting everywhere. This movie, yeah, this is also just completely my jam. And Adam, you're smart to stay off of social media because about every two or three months, the whole topic of should there be sex scenes in movies rears its ugly head. And I think the people who stand for that take, if they watch this, they would have a heart attack and die. Um, And even by the MPAA standards, I feel this movie is kind of tame. But it's still just such a just such a riot. And so it's just so like I'm I fucking am addicted to watching this movie. It's like visual drugs. And the we mentioned the editing, the whole the sequence where they talk about moving to L.A. And it's like this word association argument in like quickly intercut with just all these different landmarks is it would be like a highlight in any other filmmakers reel. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, it's, what's interesting about uh, Valley of Dolls is it did get an X rating, but it got an X rating for violence because of the beheading and the, frankly, incredibly intense uh, murder of the one of the women who's shot in the head by the Phil Spector uh, analog, which is incredibly, yeah. incredibly forward-looking. Um, I was pos- Roger Ebert acknowledges he knew nothing about Phil Spector, particularly when he based um, whatever... Uh, Z-Man. Z-Man. Z-Man on Phil Spector. Um, he, he just, he kind of, and I think that's part of, like, the whole thing of this movie is it's two outsiders skewering Hollywood, so really they're skewering an idea of Hollywood rather than, like, they weren't invited to Hollywood parties, they didn't get to go any of those, they didn't hang out with Phil Spector, so they were toying with the concepts of it, and I, I do love the idea of, like, an innocent Midwest audience learning about Hollywood from seeing Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but it, it is really funny that this movie, Meyer actually toned it down sexually because he thought he could get an R rating and he missed it because of the violence which he didn't tone down and which is actually really quite severe in the few moments that it comes up and he wanted to once he got that X rating he was apparently very very angry that he he'd missed that and he wanted to pull the movie back in and start putting all the se- like more sex stuff back in because why not because it's X rated like why the hell not and uh, that was when 20th Century Fox did intervene they were like no we're putting it out now before you could do anything else <laughs> and just like that's all you get so it is it is tame sexually compared to his other work i guess but uh still pr- pretty funny still very in a mode i mean i think it's really funny because it's a morality play that's essentially completely divorced from any conception of like concrete values at all i mean it's it's sex drug and rock and roll the women go to, to hollywood and they all lose themselves but like they lose themselves in these confusing disjointed ways i mean w- one of them pretty much just says she doesn't want to party so she just goes home and quietly becomes an alcoholic for no discernible reason it's like it just leeches in like there, there's this tension within the script of just the necessity of things happening which is just really funny i mean it, it really works out because it it, it kind of on un- 
ties the entire package of these morality films as basically just being nonsense. Um, and and it's just got all that running, and like I say, also has that that specific outsider aesthetic that it's you know when they first arrive at, at Z Man's party, his swinging party, and it's just like it's insane, just naked people wandering around. There's people are having sex in every room. There's you know a live band playing. Everyone's doing drugs. Uh, Muhammad Ali wanders in, not actually him, but you know a guy who's yeah. meant to be him. You know, mm. it's just this free for all of kind of tropes and ideas. <laughs> employed in unexpected ways. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's truly nonsensical at times. It's uh, an incoherent film, I would say, but uh, all the better for it. Like, I don't know, the Muhammad Ali character is kind of that, that embodiment of that, where he's all of a sudden like, presented as this like, sage. <laughs> he's, he's, he's like a tender man giving uh, wise advice, and then all of a sudden <laughs> he's like he's barbaric, just, yeah, hit and run. Yeah, he's just barbaric, and it, it's just kind of it's all over the damn place. I mean, I don't know the way that this thing turns and becomes this sort of like absolute farce. I mean, I guess I could see if you watched forty five minutes of this that you could say, "Oh, I'm not sure what the tone is." Is this? is this strictly parody? Is this a comedy? Like, is this satire? Ah, and you could say I'm confused by it. But once you get to the point of, uh, yeah, the guy like fucking jumping off the stage set and becoming paralyzed and all the egg. Yeah. The, we get into Superwoman and, uh, the healed paralysis. Uh, it's just like kind of going on. You're like anyone who doesn't think that this is satire at that point, uh, the stop watching movies because Jesus Christ. There's, well, there's I mean, this wonderful. E even just I was real, say, there's a yeah, a wonderful moment in it where where Edie Williams, who's I think Meyer's wife at the time, has this fantastic line of dialogue in it where she's trying to seduce one of the main characters, and she just says, "Come into my parlor," says the spider, etc. <laughs> and it's just like you know what this movie is, so they they just you know abridge the dialogue, abridge the story points, like they don't care. They've got they've got other places to be, and that's the film. The film is basically getting to all the juicy parts and then going to the juicy parts beyond the juicy parts that you didn't even know anyone could make up yeah just even real quick i mean if you don't think this is a farce and that montage i referred to that the boyfriend says if we go to la we'll be crushed right as it cuts to a shot of a person stepping on an egg on the sidewalk and i'm just like okay i'm in this is this is great it is great it is great and it's just the way that time compresses in this is just so kind of unnerving like it almost feels like this movie is taking place in the span of like three days which <laughs> really heightens all of the absurd fucking madness that's happening because it's like these kids have lost themselves but it feels like they just rolled into town like fucking five minutes ago and it's like <laughs> things, things are super confusing too because there's this argument about money and yet so far as i can tell they've all become incredibly successful very very quickly but they're like quibbling over cash and an inheritance and things and it's like are you not a like you're a pop star now like what is <laughs> they're what, all what three of happening? them are getting married at the end of the film <laughs> they have a triple marriage in the court Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The, the the back end of this is I I found that with watching a few other Myers uh, Meyer films from uh just in the, in the process of researching this like 
I, I think the one that stuck out was uh, Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, which has the same thing this does in a way where the ending just kind of like extends and extends and extends and meanders and to like the breaking point. But here it's like a fucking laugh a minute for me. Like every time it just refused to end, it would be followed up by like another tacked on absurdity. I, I just couldn't stop laughing. So by the end of it, they tack on an epilogue and it's like, what? I like it fades to black and you're like, okay, we're done. And then epilogue comes back. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, okay. One of the things I think is really funny about this, and I think the mixing factory of Hollywood, like just just an odd factoid about Beyond the Valley of Dolls, is that its cinematographer is Fred J. Konekamp, who famously who's a cinematographer of many other major Hollywood productions, such as Patton. And uh, Patton is who uh, Fred, or Russ Meyer served under in World War Two, on the where he learned his craft as a filmmaker. He was he was one of the photography core, and war footage he shot in World War II was edited into Patton. Hmm. So there's this absurd, like, I think it's just a really interesting kind of a mix-up, because I don't think that, like, they didn't seek each other out. I think Konekamp was was assigned, probably, by the studio. Meyer is generally his own cinematographer, and he was, a, by all accounts, an excellent cinematographer, so most most of his films he shot himself, but he went to Hollywood and he didn't have to, you know? He, he had a man for that, you know? <laughs> he had a whole crew. Um... So, uh, but I just think it's really funny, the Dream Factory, almost like this, you know, there's this Hollywood element with the, you know, beneath the text, too. The, you know, I can only imagine a guy who shot Patton getting to talk to a dude who probably talked to Patton and, you know, like, took orders from him in the field of combat. Uh, very, very peculiar kind of a mix-up of things. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh... I don't know. I, w- I was surprised and, and uh, it gave me a little faith uh, not being a, a Twitter denizen that uh, my prof chose to screen this for, for a bunch of 20-year-old film students and it didn't go over like a lead balloon. It, 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 people got it, I think, to an extent. I mean, I'm sure there were some people who couldn't deal, but uh, it, it wasn't a disastrous screening. Uh, people seemed to really get in the spirit of it at some stage. And uh, yeah, that was that was encouraging because uh, uh, fuck that noise about no sex in in films. That's nonsense. Uh, I think we're we're proving that so far this month. Uh, but yeah, I think that's really good. Um, I I do think it's encouraging. Going back to Faster Pussycat, I think it is really cool. That I think I I don't remember if it was this year or last, but um, two screenings of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill happened in the United States. One in L.A., one in New York. Uh, one was programmed by Pichapong Virsatakul, the great Thai filmmaker. The other was programmed by Pamela Anderson. <laughs> that That's the range of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Like, I think that's a beautiful summation of Russ Meyer as a, a like a kind of cog in, in the tapestry of cinema or whatever, you know, he's like a thread running through. Uh, you know, Apichapong, Virsatakul and, and Pamela Anderson, both in the can for Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Yeah, I I think there is like a lot of people might have trouble with the whole uh, the Superwoman Z-Man element of this film at this stage, which I can't blame you, I suppose. But uh, I also don't think one of those things. It's age. Yeah, I don't think it's like, again, when I say this is incoherent in the best possible way, I I don't think this is some sort of grand stance about uh, gender or anything of that nature. (laughs) Right, it's like, does it age well or badly? I don't think it does either. I think it's just a thing that is occurring. Um, 
And it's funny because apparently Ebert proclaims that he came up with, with that twist well into the script. Like he, because he was just hammering this thing out. He jokes actually in a making of documentary, um, he jokes that when he got to Fox to write the script, uh, he took a leave of absence from his position. I guess probably a fairly junior film critic. And he went out to Hollywood and he got like a, a, an office in 20th Century Fox. And he said the script guy showed him how to set the margins on the typewriter and then never talk to him again. There was, like, there was no no feedback or they wanted nothing to do with whatever was happening here. And Ebert says that he came up with Z-Man being a woman as like just a whim at some point. And he, you know, told Meyer and Meyer's like, great, let's do it. And then he says over the years, a lot of fans of the film have said, you know, yeah, it's, there's there's clues. There's lots of things earlier on, you know, that that tell us this. And he's like, no, there aren't. I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it was uh, something that was quite consciously in a front at the time and still reads that way now, regardless of how things have changed. It was never uh, a sensitive depiction of anything. So, No, I, I think from Meyer's perspective, it was another pair of boobs in his movie. So, well, you know, <laughs> what more could you want? And, and I think it's worth noting Z-Man, John Lazar's performance is incredible yeah this, this weird shakespearean grandiloquence to this whole performance is it's really like drink the black sperm of my vengeance i mean it, it really like it's strong and i think i think it's on record that it's it's something of an influence on a rocky horror picture show and frankenfurter uh very similar energies there but it, i think it's interesting i feel like people weren't really ready for this one this one never got that same treatment people don't dress up as z-man for halloween you know uh maybe they should yeah i i would say they should i mean yeah if you're not familiar with this movie uh seek it out absolutely it's just incredible um and also i i just don't know uh it's just like such a a transgressive text that it, you know if you have any appreciation for that sort of thing the uh the director who manages to get one over out of studio. I, I think you'll, you'll delight in what the fuck this movie is. Cause it's, you know, existence is insanity. You know, it's something, it's something else I just throw in before we move on. You mm -hmm. know, it is an incredibly transgressive movie, but also kind of like faster pussycat has that kind of interesting strain of like feminist elements, details within it. This one's really interesting because it's got the central African American couple they certainly have their ups and downs, uh, thanks to murderous Muhammad Ali <laughs> insert man. Um, but they're by far and away probably the most normal, balanced couple of the group. And, and the, the guy is studying to be a lawyer. He's trying to pass the bar exam. Uh, there's almost, a, frankly, kind of almost transgressive within the film is how normal the black characters are. Yeah. Uh, and they have like a little romantic getaway kind of scene that they do and stuff, which is not something you saw a lot in 60s cinema and American cinema. They, you know... Black films were for black people and they didn't bother mixing them up too much. You know, in the 60s, if you had a, a black person doing anything in a movie, largely it was because uh, you needed a criminal element or, you know, it was something very pointedly political. I think there's something transgressive also in the way that Meyer just kind of made not that big of a deal out of them. You know, they, they like I say, they have their ups and downs, but they, they're up, ultimately the most normal couple in the whole thing. And they kind of stay together through it all. Just kind of an interesting insert in the middle of, like we said, just the screaming chaos of this film. Yeah, I, I, I can't get past the Ebert of it all, too, because I'm not a I'm not a huge Roger Ebert guy, because I think he's in, in a lot of his writings, he was kind of a moralist in, in many ways. You know, a lot of this condemnation of 
uh, slashers, horror movies, you know, it, it, this is sort of like sense of being a, a moral arbiter and really decrying the, the degeneration of things. And to, to think that he wrote this movie, I'm like, this is the only time in my life I've ever said to myself, Roger Ebert, uh, he, he must've been a cool guy at some point. <laughs> he loved boobs. That was, I mean, that was what he and Myers or Meyer had had in common. Well, then why reportedly. do you hate uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night so much? Come on. So it's, <laughs> it's the mysteries of life. Uh, yeah. So don't let that turn you off either. I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a big Raj guy, but it's fascinating to see. Uh, I, I also watch his further collaborations with Russ Meyer, which are less, uh, significant than than this one i think he is mostly a, a story by sort of guy and and used the pseudonym in every subsequent collaboration uh but this is definitely the standout of the three i i would say up is is well worth watching as well uh beneath the valley of the ultra vixens is i think well into that third phase where you see russ meyer kind of like playing the hits you know it feels like a mashup of of movies that are much better frankly but uh, we are entering that third phase even now, I would say, when we get into Super Vixen, which is, talk about a movie that uh, I, I quite enjoy, but I have no fucking idea <laughs> what he, he's tried to do with half of it. Uh, we have Super Vixens, because I, I really have no idea what the fuck is the deal with all this super this and super that and super everything. <laughs> uh, I guess I'd have to ask the... The dearly departed Russ Meyer, but I don't know what the intent of it is. But nonetheless, it's it's a hell of a fun movie. Yeah, it's it's a weird like a comedy premise, but basically about a dude who's uh, like all he wants to do is not get laid. But around every corner, there's a woman with enormous breasts who wants nothing more to have sex with him, and it ruins his life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's you know the film, and then in the middle of it, his wife is murdered in frankly horrific fashion. Again, that's a bizarre, violent charge through his work. Um, it, yeah, it's like a film of two halves, almost. Like, it kind of, it starts with a story of a guy, his wife is murdered by a brutal cop, and he has to go on the run. And then his on the run is just this insane series of episodic comedy kind of meetups. And then the finale is this weirdly grueling desert shootout. Um, very, like I say, very peculiar film. Uh, very funny, very creative. Lots of things in here I've never seen before. Um, the the his wife is reborn as the super vixen. Um, at one point, and I don't think that was even intentional. I believe uh, he lost an actress, like she couldn't make it or whatever, so he just had to reuse the same actress so she's rebirthed on a mountain in with incredible imagery there's these amazing images this woman nude of course on top of this like rocky spire out in the middle of some desert out west um and flames surrounding her it's like remarkable images and it's like if he came up with that on the fly incredible work by him but um yeah it's it's i i jokingly jotted down that this uh, super vixens is kind of like uh, vardas le bonheur but for guys it's like yeah women are interchangeable and they'll still ruin your life it's like the the flip side of of, of vardas feminist film about women being interchangeable for for, uh, for men and that being bad myers is like they're interchangeable for men but there's so much other stuff going on it's still bad kind of a kind of a strange comedy uh 
association almost but really this this feels like um yeah I, I don't know if i could draw larger messages from this one it's just it's a really funny time it's a lot of really broad slapstick comedy and event and and that energy again that we've we talk about this just kind of like quick dynamic filmmaking yeah i think there's things to be pulled from this i mean i i think it obviously has uh the stuff to say and i think up pairs quite nicely with this film frankly um about this sort of uh, creeping authoritarianism and yeah I, I, this harry sledge what a charles napier fucking kills it in this movie <laughs> he's fucking doing amazing yeah. work and he's it, just one of those guys you know, what a distinctive face and yeah as the face of, of authoritarianism but yeah what he takes it farther and up where the, it's just like bringing in literal Hitler and this whole fucking absurd thing uh, about the cops uh, really just uh, taking advantage of people. And it it spins out into this sort of blistering critique of, of authority. But this is uh, in many ways playing with that, but not, not quite diving all the way in is. And again, I, maybe it is that interchangeability or something of that nature when we're playing with this naming convention because it's just confounding <laughs> in many ways. I'm like, I don't, we saw it in uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you have, you have uh, Superwoman, but here it's just every character. You know, every woman in this movie is prefaced with super and there are many. <laughs> it is uh, very strange and I don't know exactly what the intent is, but uh Maybe, maybe Jack has a read. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think Jack maybe touched on it. This is about a guy. This is what happens when you don't have sex, kids. Everything just goes horribly wrong and you have a brutal bazooka wrist gun shootout in the desert and you maybe die. Um, that's, uh, yeah. If your woman calls you, you go home and you please her. That's all you need to do. Or at least that's what Russ Meyer believes. It's, but, it's true because he he turns down Super Haji at the bar, and she basically implicates him in his wife's murder as a result, rather than providing him with an alibi that she knows <laughs> she yeah. could. She screws him over, so you're right, he should have just fucked her. Just have the sex, guys. You know, if it's all good and consensual, have the sex. That's the theme of this month. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. No, this is this is uh, 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 you know, again, I I feel like this is the kind of film that. Vinegar Syndrome, if they got their hands on it, they would release a gorgeous looking print. Someone of it needs to clean it up. It sucks that it looks so poor. Right it looks now. rough because there is, again, there's a lot of great visual gags, a, a lot of great, you know, framing in this. The, his, his rapid fire editing is back. There's a funny montage when the, the first super angel calls her boyfriend. They're having a phone call, and every time we cut back to her side of the conversation, She's posing nude on the bed in a completely different position. And it's just this for the whole conversation, which goes for like two minutes. She's just bouncing around the room in these different poses. Uh, it, so he it just got a great sense of humor. And but also like he really juggles tone better than any mo than many other filmmakers, because, again, it goes from like you can go from like silly to hilarious to, oh, my God, Charles Napier is stamping her head in in the bathtub. This is fucking horrifying. And it, it, I, um, it never lost me, but I was like, wow, this is some heavy shit. 
But yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild that violence coupled with the finale when we have Roadrunner cartoon sounds inserted while they're throwing dynamite around. <laughs> like, Literally ends with Shari Eubank nude on top of a mountain saying, that's all, folks. <laughs> that's that's the last shot of the movie. It's great. It's it's yeah. Uh, uh, oh, my God. So many. And there's. Uh, uh, again, there's all these funny lines of dialogue too. Where yeah, after he there's a bit where he gets a job as a as like a ranch hand and he's helping, and the wife of the farmer seduces our main guy, and he gets caught, and the guy says like I I paid your tab, I brought you in, I gave you a job, and this is how you repay me by fucking my Austrian wife. <laughs> <laughs> that whole oh, sequence he... is fucking incredible. <laughs> It's just yeah, so goddamn hilarious. He almost hit nails him with the pitchfork too, um, which then is set up with a funny little gag in his ass. But uh, yeah, that that whole scene too, because yeah, they're having sex ultimately in the top of the hayloft, and the whole building is shaking. And I I thought it was gonna come down. I thought they're gonna do that, but no, they go in a different direction. They like say with the pitchfork and other slapstick comedy. It's like keeps keeps you guessing throughout but um yeah i mean there's just so much visual imagination and like I, there's kind of a, like a really strong and i guess it's it's in his other films well but i think really here he's really kind of going in for this almost like pop art kind of like close-up intensity there's almost like this cartoon frame energy he's a lot like a lot of very dynamic close-ups and cutting in and close um, that even I don't think uh, Faster Pussycat or Valley of the Dolls have as much so here. Um, there's just this real kind of like punchy compositions throughout. And of course, obviously, many of them are, are the women shot from below. But um, it's it's really kind of something. And it's got these just wild elements. And I mean, for example, the blink and you'll miss it almost scene of her like picking up Charles Napier's character's enormous fake flaccid cock because uh, he can't because he's imp he's impotent he can't please her and did just decide to leave that in there as a thing um, like just <laughs> like it's always going just a little further than you would think and like Jake points out I mean the murder scene in this is genuinely horrific it's it's really really violent it's horrible um but it's, it's preceded by her dancing to herself in the bathroom and goading him on because she thinks that he's stuck behind the door. So she starts making fun of him for not even being able to break a door down. There's just this weird energy behind it. It's um, it's, it's just it's really something. And it, it is a shame, like say, that these movies are kind of locked behind um the, the Ross Meyer estate. And I mean, Meyer has been dead now for 15 plus years at this point probably close to 20 at this point um and just i i think his his film model was vhs probably obviously theatrical distribution driving everything but then i think he was selling vhs copies for like 60 bucks a pop in like the 80s and that was like a license to print money uh, at the time because he was very successful and popular so people were paying that it was you know big money like what 60 bucks in 80s money now is like it's a hundred plus dollars easily for a single movie um, and I think they just, they never, they, they don't seem to have got the message about home video since then. So the, these movies are just kind of sitting around unless you get a print, you've got to look at some really cruddy copies. And it's, it's a shame because say, uh, Meyer is, he's a fantastic cinematographer. There's wonderful 
you know, desert scenes in this, frankly. There, I mean, there's elements of this that are so close to, like we say, the other side of the wind or, or an Antonioni film in terms of, like, figures and, like, Pasolini's Teorama. They're, you know, these, these like figures in the desert it's just they're shot through with Meyer sensibility that's like just ginormous breasts in the desert rather than you know existential ennui um they deserve they 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 deserve to be in much better condition and to be seen in in better condition than this. so i hope someone can sort it out at some point uh, i know there was some talk as well of of his nurse, uh, I think, in his last few years, there were some discussions. I thought there was a discussion that they were they were really maybe didn't approve of the films anymore and were trying to suppress them. But talking to some people in Chicago repertory screen, they say apparently they're very very good to give the the prints out. If anyone asks, they're really they're not. They just don't seem to have an eye for home video at all or or an interest in it. So that, that's a shame. Real real, real shame. shame. I I hope it changes. You know, there's still hope. I mean, the film songs of elements are all being preserved and circulating. That's all good. But yeah, I, I the the world deserves a pristine 4K home video release of Super Vixens. Yeah, yeah. We need this. I'd say the same about Up, yeah. frankly, and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I. Again, I suppose it'd be the second time in as many weeks of uh, of this pervert's journey that I think Yodorowsky could be another sort of touch point. Which you get these like really stark compositions and certainly no fear of uh, of the human body and uh, this this playfulness and almost uh, fourth wall breaking as well. Which yeah, this film is is quite literally a Looney Tune in, in many respects and. I, I think you could probably criticize some of the later work for for delving too far into that tone, but something magical kind of happens here, where, again, you look at that Napier murder scene, and it's, it is, in all intents and purposes, it is a Looney Tunes scene, you know, it's Bugs Bunny dancing because he thinks he's safe, and then he's not, and, and the murder is this great sort of, like, wild stomping in a pool of water that... Uh, it, you, it could be straight out of a cartoon, but it, it transposed into <laughs> this film's reality. It doesn't read as fun anymore. <laughs> it's just like yeah. fucking <laughs> horrifying. And yeah, there's something really magical happening in, in a lot of this film. And you know, I mean, his work in general, just outstanding. Uh, nothing like anything you'll ever see, frankly. I mean, you could see the influences going forward and you can see some of his contemporaries again i think yodorowsky is an interesting touch point as someone who's very much sort of absorbed into that pop art world uh in a way that russ meyer is not but russ meyer uh, i'll take him any day because he knows what he is you know he's not pretending to be an important artist uh he's just making what he wants to make and frankly that yields results that are more important art in my mind yeah yeah i tend to agree you'd be a fool to uh dismiss him um there's there's a yeah a level of uh just just creativity and art and i i dare say genius here that i was not anticipating but i'm happy to have uh seen through uh yeah just uh, fantastic stuff all around. Yeah. Who would have thought that our, our super horny month, we've ended up accidentally uh, exposing ourselves to a lot of really good stuff so far. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Where do we we'll go see. next week? Can we keep the streak going? We shall see. I think we have a, a solid chance next week, but the Thanksgiving episode, uh, no. 
<laughs> you know, we have some real don't worry listeners we have some real shit on the horizon don't worry but yeah. i think we're switching to asses next week yeah, 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 yeah. um oh is that who's next uh we have tinto brass oh okay well then i will be in on that one yeah and we'll have jake once more this was his yeah. this was his pitch uh i think i'm to blame for this one and also the thanksgiving episode which we won't get into yet that we'll let that be a bit <laughs> of a surprise um but I think that about wraps it for this week. Um, I, uh, whenever I host, I, I refuse to partake in uh, putovers. You know, I, I've put over. Uh, you just watch any Russ Meyer film, frankly. Uh, but yeah, I could say Up uh, as one that I visited for this that is tangentially involving Roger Ebert and is a very strange uh, film, a little more pornographic than uh, the three we watch for this. Um, and yeah, it does share the, with Super Vixens where you're kind of like, you're almost concerned for the actress is uh, getting like a UTI or something because Russ Meyer's really into like posing bare vaginas on uh, <laughs> landscapes for some reason. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but it, it, it's a really interesting, like bizarrely sort of overwritten Shakespearean thing uh, about uh, solving the murder of a contemporary Adolf Hitler. Uh, and it's also, uh, probably it, it, I got big twin peaks vibes from the thing too. It's, it's got a, a whole lot of like weird diner stuff with a massive, uh, Paul Bunyan esque, a uh, lunk. And it, it's just a really bizarre and interesting film, uh, that, uh, should be seen. So I lied. I did put over something, but it doesn't really count because it's the same director we're, we're discussing, but, um, <laughs> Jack. What are you putting over? Uh, I, you know, I'm going to put over a very different tone of film. I'm not sure if the director would like to be associated with Russ Meyer anyway. I'm going to put over Kitty Green's newest film, The Royal Hotel. Mm. Um, I think Kitty Green is really carving out a niche. She's uh, made a bunch of really strong films. Royal Hotel, I, I, I put it over with some reservation in that I think it's maybe not as exciting as her last two films, certainly The Assistant and uh, uh, Casting Jean Benet. But it's still basically a kind of a wake and fright kind of movie about two young girls who kind of get a job in the middle of nowhere in Australia on a visa. They work in a little pub and uh, institutional male violence and masculinity comes to the forefront because they're the only two women there and everyone's drunk and leering and it's just awful. Because Australians and everyone who seems to go to Australia seems to just make movies about how Australia is just an awful, terrible place. But it kind of ties in with some other things about colonialism, I think, about, you know, the the, the whiteness of the land, I guess, and the, the untamed uh, terrain of Australia maybe driving everyone slightly insane. Um, I think a very strong film, though, and well worth it. And I think it only just came out, like, last month, maybe. It's got some kind of a cinema release, but I did not notice it in any of my local cinemas. But uh, I think you can, you can rent it now as well digitally, so... The Royal Hotel. I, I thought it was pretty good. Okay, I think Australia is essentially uh, the same as like California, where it's like, well, if you're in the right place, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> but oh yeah, around the edges yeah. where the people <laughs> just live. Just venture in a little bit, Ed, boy. You do not want to fucking be. There. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's. I'm interested in this now. I, I uh, wasn't really aware of what it's about, but uh, Wake and Fright is is good enough that if it's even garnering a, a slight comparison, I will check it out uh jake what are you putting over yeah you know i could just 
recommend you watch these uh, Russ Meyer films. Um, I also watched a, a countless horror movies in uh, October, but I'm going to go ahead and be lazy and put over something I've already put over because I can't stop watching it, and it's so damn good. Uh, Taskmaster. You are missing out if you are not watching Taskmaster. It is literally the greatest joy I've ever come to know. And every episode <laughs> is on YouTube. Um, so Got Jack, me through I COVID. Think, yeah, yeah. I, I had COVID a month and a half ago. Jack recommended I watch Taskmaster. It's all my wife and I have been watching since. There's up to 16 seasons now. It's, it's, it's incredible stuff. I, I rarely have laughed harder. She's not, has not laughed harder. It's great. Taskmaster, check it out. And there's an Australian variant too. So New, and New, Zealand, New Zealand as well. There's no, there's an Australian one as well. They're only I think oh, one or two seasons in. So yeah, you can you can you can travel around. It's not about how Australia is terrible though. They don't really dwell on that. Yeah, just stay away from the American one and uh, primarily stick with the UK version. That's uh, what you should do. But yeah, Taskmaster, check it out. All right. I don't know what that is, even though Jake's put it over twice on episodes where I've been out. It's all right. Sorry. It's a it's a panel, a UK panel show. Five comedians are given a series of tasks that they have to do, and then they're graded on how well they do the tasks by the taskmaster, Greg Davies, and his assistant, Alex Horn. And the task can be something like, get this banana into this bottle. You cannot break the bottle. And then they discover, oh, the banana is frozen and the bottle is full of jelly. So then they got to work the jelly out and then thaw out the banana, then get it into pieces. It's just it's just a great show to watch people's ingenuity at play. And also it's very pedantic. All right. Well, you lost but, me yeah. at uh, the UK uh, panel show. So I, I will unfortunately not be able to check this out. But what you can check out is uh, our Patreon. Uh, we are Patreon supported. Uh, we, uh, rest assured, we don't make jack shit for money from this Patreon, and that's not the fucking point. Uh, it just helps us pay the bills, because uh, hosting is not free, and, uh, you know, we like to take care of all the people generous enough to spend their time uh, helping us with the podcast and uh, supply equipment when needed, etc., etc. And, uh, you folks who do help, uh, you, you keep us going. We probably uh, would have given up the ghost if we kept uh, hemorrhaging money on the project. But yeah, it's uh, for those of you who donate at any level, uh, there is access to all of our back content from back when we were uh, a humble blog. Uh, and as well as you have, you have Steve's uh, promise to, to mail anyone in the continental United States uh, a piece of media. You know, you will. You will receive some sort of DVD, Blu-ray. I don't know. Maybe he'll dip into his vinyl, but you'll you'll get something. Anyone who who joins, uh, and at the five dollar and up level, uh, you get your name right on air. You get to participate in any polls. Uh, although you know, occasionally like this week, we'll throw a poll out to the public uh, as we try and name this uh, horny month. Uh, but usually those polls are reserved for five dollar and up members. Uh, and we read your name on air, as I said, which this month we have David, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. And uh, we thank you all for your support. Uh, other than that, there's not a ton. You could follow us on Twitter. You, you could follow our YouTube channel if you want to revisit all of Colin's uh, fun videos that he makes for us. Uh, and we will be getting full episodes on there uh, sooner or later. And uh, we're just working on a, a nice way to present them. Um, and we will also have bonus episode coming up soon. Uh, we've been putting it off, uh, 
because these these weird horror movies just keep coming. But uh, we're going to have a horror roundup sometime soon. And I'm going to talk to Steve about potentially uh, moving caustic content to a monthly Patreon uh, thing as well. Because uh, I'd like to get back to doing that. And this seems like a, a good venue for it, frankly. So we will uh, have more goodies for all subscribers in the future as well. And we're used to donate at that $25 level, uh, which is our highest tier. Well, you actually can uh, force us to do an episode on whatever the hell you want. And that's not $25 a month for a year or something. It's just one time, you know. You, you've got 25 spare bucks and you want to torture us, uh, feel free. Uh, we'll happily do uh, whatever suggested. Uh, within reason. I mean, don't don't give us like 200 hours of, of programming to go through. Um, they keep suggesting good stuff, yeah, though. Yeah. So we're letting us off the hook here. Right, yeah. Isn't that what kicked off this month? It yep. is indeed, yeah. yeah. And we had uh, Evan made a suggestion uh, for last week's episode, and yeah, it was, it was so inspiring that we've made not only a, a theme month, but a annual theme month, I do believe. So, so yeah, you, you, could, you could forever alter the course of our programming with your choice. Uh, I think that's about it. Uh, you could always send questions and comments to optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, we will read those in due time. Uh, and the last word, Jake, it's yours. This has been my happening, and it freaked me out. Mm-hmm.